The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC this um, snowy Sunday. It's good to see you all. To have your Bibles turn to Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11, we'll pick up where we left off. Last week we were diving into this incredible, beautiful passage of prophecy about the coming of the, <clears throat> the shepherd king. All these incredible promises we kind of went through, and it's just like it was just an amazing passage of Scripture. Leaves you feeling incredibly encouraged as you see all the precious promises that are pro- uh, given to us as a result of uh, Christ showing up on the planet. And so uh, we see what we there is in all these promises that they they have to be able to come into uh, effect, and before that can happen then what needs to happen is an old must pass away. Always with God, the old must pass away before the new can come. And so even in your own life, you think in terms of, okay, I, I want to I know the Lord. I want to know Him. And so maybe you start to come to church and you're starting to learn a little bit. Um, and, and what you have to realize is that before... You can really engage in all of that incredible stuff that we learned about last week or any of the promises of the Lord. Before you can start that journey, the old has to pass away and then the new will come. And so it's kind of like even (laughs) there's a reminder in the divine design as the creator has created the universe that every year, man, the, the cycle of life, we go into this dormancy. And then the old, like the deadness of winter, and then spring comes, and here is the new. Okay, so there's just over in all of creation, we can even see this lesson that is taught, is that that death comes and then life comes. You know, the seed is planted, it dies, and then it brings forth growth. And so today we come uh, to chapter 11, and whereas chapters, I believe it was 9 and 10, were some of the most beautiful prophetic passages of scripture that we have in all of the bible chapter 11 is the darkest prophecy in israel's prophetic writings like we get to chapter 11 man it's bad okay so just brace yourselves like you're like you probably were thinking on the way to church with all the snow and it's freezing cold it's like what one degrees outside you're probably thinking why am i doing this and then you get here and i say it's one of the darkest prophecies in all the Bible. You're like, told you we should have stayed home. <laughs> so anyway, as we jump in there, there are three parts to this prophecy, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through and I'm going to give you the three parts and give you some explanation on them and then give you some takeaways about how they apply to your life today and how they apply to my life and how we can like be encouraged in the midst of that. But we start in part one is the coming judgment on Israel. So last week was about the judgment around Israel's enemies, and we saw the contrast between the two kings, and this week is about the judgment coming on the land of Israel itself. There's a judgment prophesied, and it starts this way. It's the first three verses. It says, Open your doors, Lebanon, so that fire may devour your cedars. Well, you juniper, for the cedar has fallen. The stately trees are ruined. Well, oaks of Bashan, 
The dense forest has been cut down. Listen to the wail of the shepherds. Their rich pastors are destroyed. Listen to the roar of the lions. The lush thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, this is speaking of the complete destruction of Jerusalem. So again, be reminded of they've been in captivity because of their disobedience. They were in captivity for 70 years. They're released. They come back to their homeland. And and God says that He's going to take care of them. But then there's this prophecy out there in the future that destruction is going to happen to the nation of Israel. And so we know this because the, the, when it talks about the cedars of Lebanon, that's symbolic of the temple. The temple was built out of cedars that were taken from Lebanon. And so when it says that the cedars of Lebanon are going to be, they're going to perish, and it talks about all of the other oak trees and the, um, uh, the, the different um, uh, growth there, the juniper, like it's saying, man, if the cedar is in trouble, so are all of these other trees. And then it says, wail of, uh, the wail of the shepherds and the roar of the lions. What's that about? Well, that's about the leadership of Israel. It's about the shepherds who were in control and leading in Israel. The lion is, is, is always indicative of a, of a leader. And, and, and it says, man, that, that they're going to be, um, there's going to be wailing and roaring because all of the lushness that they used to operate in is gone. When you take the thicket away from the lion, he has no way to sneak up on his prey. And so when it's saying is that all that you have in control of your leadership is going to be removed and taken away from you. And so the only real um, possibility of this prophecy is the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in the year AD 67 through 70. We have the Jewish um, war against Rome. And so what happens is, if you remember, there's always a rebellion trying to rise up against Rome during the time of Christ. And these different leaders or insurrectionists, if you will, against the nation of Rome were trying to overthrow that government. And so they finally got enough people together that they were able to overthrow a Roman garrison. And at the time, Nero was the emperor. And when this happened, and this is about 30, uh, probably something like 34 years after the death of Christ, after the death and resurrection of Christ. And so you remember Jesus says, man, he talks a lot about this generation will not pass away until you see a lot of these things happening. Well, so about 30 years, um, a little over 30 years after the death of Christ, this rebellion takes place. They overthrow this Roman garrison, and Nero dispatches um, Vespasian to go and, and attack and take the, the nation back, the land that they had um, pushed them out of to take it back under Roman control. And so it is a gruesome time, and and during that time, Vespasian, Nero dies, and Vespasian becomes the emperor, and Titus is the second in command, and so he finishes um, this uh, a takeover and take back of the land from this revolt that happened from the Jewish people. It was an awful time. The city went under siege, and it was an awful time. It was so bad <clears throat> under the siege that they were starving to the point that many of the people resorted to cannibalism. Like they just had nothing. It was, I mean, when you talk about bad times, it was a bad time 
for the nation of Israel. So you can read about the Jewish war, um, uh, uh, Josephus's Jewish war. You can read about it in other things, other historical accounts. But that's what's being prophesied here in these three verses, is that this, this is going to come upon you. And what's, what's fascinating is that after that war, Judaism ceased to exist politically, and they were scattered. And from that time, throughout all of the rest of history that has been written, the Jewish people have encountered incredible suffering. And so we see that it is a result of what's being prophesied here in Zechariah chapter 11. And so the first thing that the first part of the prophecy is that there's a coming judgment on Israel, and we see that has actually happened in history in AD 66 through 70. The second part of the prophecy has to do with the coming rejection of the Messiah. So why is this going to happen? Why is God going to allow this to happen to his chosen people? Remember in the Old Testament, he comes to Abraham, he chooses Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and from that point on, the people are identified as the chosen people of God. And they are a nation, a people group in whom God is going to interact with, give a law, reveal truth to, raise up prophets, install a, a, a system of worship um, to, uh, to honor him through sacrifice and the temple and uh, uh, give them kings. Okay, And so God does that. And then uh, so so when we think in terms of why is this allowed to happen if they are the chosen people of God, why are they engaged? Why are they experiencing so much suffering in AD 66 through 70 and even at different periods of time throughout history since then? Well, that comes in in part two in the coming rejection of the Messiah. So let's start in verse four and, and just notice what it says. This is what the Lord my God says, shepherd the flock marked for slaughter. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them. For I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will give everyone into the hands of their neighbors and their king. They will devastate the land, and I will not rescue anyone from their hands. So I shepherded the flock, flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Okay, so here's, here's what I want you to see before I continue on. Oftentimes, God would reveal a word to a prophet, and it would come through a vision like we learned in the first uh, seven chapters of the book of Zechariah. So these incredible visions that God would give, and there would be a word behind the visions. There would be an interpretation of them. Sometimes God would come and he would reveal a message to the prophet, and then the prophet was, was to go out and act it out. We see that in Jeremiah. We see it in Ezekiel. They do things. They, they go out and they act out the scene um, before, uh, the, um, before the people to teach a lesson, a, an object lesson, if you will. So that's what um, Zechariah is saying that he's doing. He's saying, man, he received a word from the Lord, and he goes and he acts this out. So Zechariah says, um, so I shepherded the flock marked for slaughter. So he started functioning like a shepherd and taking care of, of these people that were marked for slaughter. 
particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staffs and called one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. In one month, I got rid of three shepherds. The flock detested me, and I grew weary of them and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. It was revoked on that day, and so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. And I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Then I broke my second staff called union, breaking the family bond between Judah and Israel. So Zechariah is saying, man, I got this word from the Lord that I was to walk this out in obedience. And so I took a staff called favor, and I took another staff called union. And I would, he, he stood out in front of the people, and he talked about these things. He told them, this staff represents favor. This staff represents union. And as he did that for a period of time, then he called on them to pay him what they thought he was worth. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Then he took the 30 pieces of silver and he threw it to the potter that was in the temple. Okay, so this is, you got to think, this is happening 500 years before the time of Christ. And God tells the prophet Zechariah to do these things, so he does them. So the second um, part of the prophecy is about the coming rejection of the Messiah. When he says, shepherd the flock marked for slaughter. This is symbolic of God's last approach to Israel through Jesus, whom they would reject. So Jesus comes, Zechariah is acting this out, but it is a foreshadowing of when Jesus would come, and he would, he would attempt to shepherd the flock of Israel. This is why these passages are so important in the New Testament and the Gospels. When it talks about Jesus, he, he goes and he looks over Jerusalem and he longs for them. He weeps over them and he says, oh, how I long to gather you and take care of you like a hen takes care of her sheep or her, or her chicks and gathers them under her wings. It's, it's like Jesus is saying, man, I want to shepherd you. I want to take care of you. And he's trying to come to the nation of Israel. It's God in the flesh coming to the Jewish people. And, and, and so this is, when it talks about them shepherding the, the flock marked for slaughter, it's symbolic of Jesus coming and making a, an approach. Favor symbolizes that, that staff um, called favor symbolizes Israel's favored status as the chosen people of God. And so like this one staff is like, it's, it's symbolic of that. And he's saying, look, you, you have to understand you are the chosen people of God. And then union symbolizes the harmony between the northern and southern tribes. And so they had harmony at this particular time. And what is being prophesied is that harmony is going to be broken. And always the downfall of a nation is their inability to achieve unity. And that's what makes so scary the times that we're living in, is we have no unity amongst our, our country is so divided right now. And I fear that if we can't reestablish some unification, it could be the beginning of the downfall of this incredible country that we live in. And we see how fragile it is. Now, 
10 years ago, if we would have said something like that, we probably wouldn't have felt like that. Yeah, it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. But now we look at it and we go, geez, man, things have gotten really shaky in it. And we see how easily like, the economy can be, be, you know, fall and things can begin to happen. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, man, unity symbolizes this harmony that the, the southern tribes had with the northern tribes. And so what happens after this war of A.D. 66 and through 70, the Jewish war with Rome, is they no longer have unity. Like it's lost. It's gone. And they, 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 as a matter of fact, right up to the time of it, there are three divisions. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and I believe the Herodians. And they were all in division against one another. They were all Jews, but they couldn't get along. And they would fight about ridiculous things. Like the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees did. But they all believed in the same God. And so like, what happens is after the war, man, they do not achieve any unity at all. So this prophecy is fulfilled there. And then it says three shepherds. Now there are a lot of different interpretations about this shepherd, these three shepherds that are removed in, in one day. I fall into the camp that I interpret these three shepherds to be the office of prophet, priest, and king. Because Jesus shows up on the planet, and he shows up as a prophet. He shows up as a priest who offers himself as a great sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and he becomes the, the king of Israel. His appearing brought all three offices to a close. John the Baptist was the last prophet. We see that um, when the, during the Jewish war uh, that I, I keep referring to, of AD 66 through 70, the temple was destroyed. Once that temple was destroyed, so was the sacrificial system of worship. It was removed. So there was no need, there was no priests who were instituting that sacrificial system of worship. And then we know uh, that no king has led the Jewish state since that time. Now just let that sink in for a minute. Like this is prophesied that these, these, th these three offices will be removed 500 years before the time of Christ. Christ shows up, the, the worship system is taken away. They haven't observed that system of worship since A.D. 70. Okay, so for thousands of years, the, the, the Old Testament worship, um, the system of worship that God gave them has not been observed in this, and the, the priests have not sacrificed like they did in the Old Testament. We haven't had a prophet. John the Baptist was the last prophet because now we've, we live in an era of preachers. That's why we have preachers, not prophets now. They proclaim what has already been prophesied. And then Israel hasn't had a king since then. This is where it gets really interesting. When Jesus was crucified, he brings him out before the people, Pilate does, and he says to him, behold, he says to all the people of Israel, they're there before Pilate, the Roman governor who's leading in, in, in that area. He's responsible for, for controlling it. And he says, behold your king. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. They reject Jesus as king and say, we have no king but Caesar. Then Pilate does something interesting. Everybody who was crucified had their sins what, or or their, what they were guilty of, their crimes, was posted above their head on the cross. So they would make a sign like the two guys on the right and left of Jesus said, this guy is a thief. Click, 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 click. And everybody who passed by said, man, I don't want to steal stuff. You end up hanging on a cross like that guy. 
The other guy probably, maybe his was, uh, uh, you know, they said they were thieves and robbers, so we'll call him a robber too, you know. Click, click, click. You walk by, you look at that guy and say, okay, son, you see right there, that's why you don't want to steal. Pilate had written above Jesus' show, a Roman government official officially recognizing Jesus as king when the nation of Israel rejected him and chose him as chose Caesar instead. And so we look at him and go, whoa, this is great. There hasn't been a king recognized since Jesus was recognized. So the office of prophet, priest, and king have been done away with. All right, now, um, then we come to this really interesting thing where Zechariah says, I, so I called to the people, pay me my wages, and they paid me 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver is the cost of a slave. If you, if you add someone, and slavery was not the same as we, we think of slavery in America. It was, it was a lot different, okay? Like people could willingly um, put themselves in a, in a relationship like that with another person, and, and they could be earmarked, and they could have allegiance to them. Sometimes they would work off their debt in order to, uh, because they borrowed from somebody. And, and so if a person was in that, they, they had sold themselves willingly into that with a, another person. And let's say, uh, I, let's say one Jew had that uh, a guy under his control. He owed him a lot of money, so he, he was one of his employees, if you will. Then um, I... I had him out working in a field and, and you had, an, uh, you had a, an ox and you came and, and you were kind of going by and your ox got a little bit fussy and all of a sudden he gored this guy and he died. Then you would be required to pay me 30 pieces of silver. It was the lowest level of redemption for the cost of human life that existed in the Jewish law. We go to Matthew chapter 26. All right, now this is really, really interesting. Keep in mind, 500 years before Jesus was born. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 coins, from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So the guys, they don't even realize they're fulfilling prophecy when they say, yeah, we'll, like if you turn him over to us and you set him up, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. Now look at chapter 27. In chapter 27, beginning in verse 1, after Judas betrays and hands Jesus over, it says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. And they bound him, and they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And he returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priest and the elders. And he said, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left then he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. Now that's, how, that's how screwed up you can get in your thinking if you aren't listening to the Lord. You can take it out of the treasury to make it blood money, but you can't put it back in the treasury once the transaction is done and it has become blood money. These guys are so far off. And he says, so 
They didn't put it back into the temple treasury, so they decided to use the money to buy what? The potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. And so if you look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah is like, like we call them the major prophets. Zechariah is a minor prophet. So obviously their gospel writers are going to refer back to the major, not the minor. But if you look and study Jeremiah, he talks about the pottery and the potter's field. And Zechariah, no doubt we have just read that Zechariah was commanded to act this whole scene out. It happened historically, and it was a prophetic utterance of what was going to happen for the price that they would set on Jesus' head and what he was worth. And then that potter's field, what's that about? Well, the potter, if you were a potter, you had a lot of scrap, and then you needed a place to get rid of your scrap, and it was kind of like a dump. And so they would put their excess pottery, because that's, I mean, that was a big business. They had pottery everywhere for, for just getting along in life, and they would take the scraps and they would put it in a field, but the field couldn't grow anything. It was unfit for any kind of use. It was no good for agriculture, so it was only good for a burial place. So they bought it, and it was used to bury foreigners or people who didn't have the money to pay for their burial. And so we see, like, you look at that and you go, okay, why do I trust the Bible? When somebody says, oh, well, the Bible was written by some men, you need to, like, go, whoa, bro, that's what makes the Bible so incredible, is that some men had the ability to write these things that actually happened hundreds of years later, in some cases thousands, after they wrote them with no idea how it was going to happen, and that Jesus somehow made sure if he was not God, how did he ensure that that would get written before he was born, and then he does it after he's born? It's, it's amazing when you stop to think about it. That's why you can look at the Bible and go, it is unlike any other document in, that we have in history, and that's why the writer of Revelation, the Apostle John, says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so prophecy gives us so much confidence that we can walk out our faith and walk in obedience and surrender our lives to Jesus. It's not a blind leap of in the dark. As a matter of fact, to trust anything else as your faith is a blind leap in the dark. Because there is nothing else that has evidence that is left behind like the Bible does for us. And so we see that part two is all about the coming rejection of the Messiah, which is what brought about the destruction of Israel and happened um, 34 years after his passing, which he said, he said, this generation will not pass away until you see these things getting really, really bad. And you can study that in Matthew chapter 24. And then we come to part three of the prophecy. And this is about the coming of a wicked, wicked shepherd as additional judgment. So verse 15 says this, back in Zechariah 11. Then the Lord said to me, take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For I am going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not, who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured, or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered and his right eye totally blinded. Okay, what is this about? 
Since they re- now, this plays out a couple of ways. Follow me on this. Since they rejected Jesus as king, guess who they got? Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Guess who was responsible for taking them out in A.D. 66 and 70? The Roman government. Their new king. And so Jesus says to them through this prophecy, they are, they're going to get what they asked for. Now, so in one sense, in the real near term, this is a prophetic utterance about the wicked shepherd as additional judgment on the nation. But it also is regarding the coming of the Antichrist. Okay, so the Antichrist is the wicked shepherd. He's the man of lawlessness, uh, lawlessness mentioned in, in, I believe it's Thessalonians. And so what we have, and, 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 and here's what you need to understand, is because sometimes we, we get caught up in this one singular figure. When Jesus said there will be many, many Antichrist, as a matter of fact, the only thing that we have that is in the singular is this one reference called the man of lawlessness. But Jesus says there will be many who come in my name and there will be many Antichrist. So what is an Antichrist? An Antichrist is a spirit that is any, anything that is anti-Jesus. Okay? So you, you could be following the spirit of Antichrist right now. And it, this, we look into the future and this, this man of lawlessness, and he does come and he, he takes on this, um, this political role and be, people do start following him and there's a great allegiance in the future. The spirit of that is alive right now. Like, like, and so that's how he assumes his power is people start yielding to the spirit of that unbelief against Jesus right now, and our world is marked by it. And so when we think in terms of uh, what's being taught here, we look at verse 16, and he says that he will not do these things, and they are all the things that people like myself or Jesus in the spiritual realm, and people like myself in the uh, realm of the church are supposed to do. They will not care for the lost. What is a pastor supposed to do? Care for the lost. This wicked will not seek the young. What does that mean? It's the, the young, the people who are coming new into the kingdom. They seek them out and help them grow. They will not heal the injured. They will not bind up the wounds of those um, who are hurting. They will not feed the healthy. They will not take their time to exegete the word and teach the flock of God what Jesus expects. And they just start teaching what culture expects. Okay, that's what a wicked shepherd does. And so we see that, and, 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 and then we look at... Um, uh, we look at the final Antichrist, what will happen when this person rises to this superpower at the great, uh, 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 at the end, when we, before we get, when we get to the end of time, and this leader assumes this position, what happens to him? Well, it says, the, the sword will strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered and his right eye totally blinded. And so what, what this is prophesying is that he will have his right arm paralyzed and his right eye blinded. And we know for most people that is the dominant um, hand and the dominant eyesight, right? So like if, if, if that takes place, what is, what is being forecast here or prophesied is that his strength will wither. He may uh, come to this place of strength, but it ultimately will wither. 
And his intelligence, his aim, his, his ability to have a strategy against uh, and what he's doing will be frustrated and nullified. It's exactly what Revelation teaches us. Okay, so all throughout the Bible, it's taught that this is what will happen. All right, now here's the deal. Is that we, we look at this and we go, there are three parts of this prophecy. One, the coming judgment on Israel. That has happened. Two, the coming rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Messiah, That has happened. Three, the coming of a wicked shepherd as additional judgment. It has happened in spirit. It has not happened in totality. It is actually like we're living in that time right now that it is actually happening. There have been spirits of Antichrist ever since the time of Jesus. Right? So it's anything anti-Jesus. So we, we break that down, and what do we learn? What are the takeaways? Well, this is good, man. I like learning this prophecy. What does it mean? Here it is. Here's the first takeaway, and there's only two. There are consequences for rejecting Jesus as shepherd. That's the first thing we learn from this text. Verse 5, so we go back to verse 5, and this is what it says. Their buyers, it's referring to the sheep. Their buyers slaughter them. Now, this is where the uh, Hebrew language and the Greek language become important, that we are able to do some interpretation. The word them is written in the feminine. What's that tell us? They were used, female sheep, intended for breeding, not slaughter. And so the purpose of these ewes was to multiply, but their rejection of the truth equaled no multiplication. Therefore, it brought about death. What is our purpose? Jesus said, go ye thereforth and make disciples. Multiply. What did God tell the first humans he created? Go ye thereforth, subdue the earth and multiply. Okay? And so all over throughout Scripture, we see even the nation of Israel was to multiply. Why were they to multiply when they were operating in the Old Testament as the chosen people of God? They were to multiply and receive the blessing of God so that all of the other pagan nations could learn about God. So God did not choose Israel because they were his favorite. He chose Israel because he loved all people and he's trying to communicate to all of us. And so we're, we're intent, our, the intention for us is to multiply. And if we are not multiplying, then it equals death. That's why if a church is not able to grow and multiply, ultimately it dies a slow death. And the doors end up getting closed. It's because the people will not multiply. And, and, and so for us individually, how we apply that is if we don't multiply the talents that have been given to us. Remember the, the parable of the talents that Jesus taught? One guy has ten, one guy has five, one guy has one. What are they expected to do with them? Multiply. The guy who had ten turned them into twenty. The guy who had five turned it into ten. He multiplied. Well done, well done. Here's some more. The guy who had one did nothing. He hid it in the ground, acted like it didn't exist, and death came to his life. And so what that's saying is the blessing of God, as we taught last week, the blessing of God can't fall on our lives unless we walk in a place of multiplication because that is our purpose. God did not save you for you. He saved you for him that you might go multiply and make disciples that make disciples of all the people groups around us. 
That's verse 5, and I think it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible to think about that. Here's verse 9. Verse 9 says, when he says, because of, the, they, it says, verse 8, it's like, I got rid of the three shepherds, the flock detested me, I grew weary of them. And then verse 9 says, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. What does that mean? It's saying that because the shepherd is rejected, he just lets things take their course. And so when we see a lot of the, the things in the world and we go, well, how could God let that happen? Why is this happening in, in and around us? It is because the, the shepherd whom has been rejected is allowing things to take their course. And so God is just, it's, it's the same teaching that we would, we would find in Romans chapter one. He gave them over to a repraved mind. That's what they desired. And so he just let it happen. And that's where free will comes into the equation. And then we get verse 11 is a beautiful part of this prophecy. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, um, it was revoked on that day. And then this is what we want to key in on. And so the oppressed of the flock, remember those are the ones that he was charged to, to lead. So the oppressed of the flock who were watching who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. Now, what, what we have here is that in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus prophesies. They ask him about the temple. He says, he makes that statement, in three days this thing will be destroyed and I will rebuild it. He's referring to himself. And so they ask him, well, tell us when all of these things will happen. And he starts to describe it. And he starts to say, man, it is going to be bad. And, and, and pray that you're not with child. And flee when you see these things happening. Get out of town when this stuff starts taking place. And then he says this throughout. Like how many times can you think of the, uh, the different parables that are taught where Jesus says, watch, 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 watch and pray, watch. Keep, keep your oil burning in your lamp. Watch for I am coming. Watch, watch, watch. And so the people of God are always to be people who are watching. Who is being referred to in verse 11? The oppressed. Who are the oppressed? Who did Jesus come and start calling into his kingdom? Fishermen. Um, tax collectors. Uh, the disdain of the society, prostitutes, sinners that weren't receiving proper instruction from the religious shepherds who had rejected and detested Jesus as the shepherd king. He ministers to them. They become his followers. They become the ones who are responsible for leading the church after he's, he's risen from the dead. In Matthew chapter 24, when we read that, um, and I think we should, we got enough time, man, especially compared to last week, amen? Y'all following me? This is pretty cool. So in Matthew 24... Verse 14, this is called the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus is talking about these things. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Let that, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. And so he goes on to talk about this. Here's, here's where it's, what's really amazing. Is that Jesus right there prophesies 
that believers will flee. Zechariah prophesies 500 years before Jesus that the oppressed were watching and they recognized authority and word from the Lord, which are two marks of a person who belongs to the Lord. They recognize authority of the word in their lives and they recognize Jesus as Lord. During the war of AD 66 through 70, the city was under siege and Titus lifted the siege for a few days and the Christians fled the city. Not everybody. Who? The oppressed who were watching and remembered what Jesus said. And they said, we got to get out of here. And Christianity, it's one of the ways that Christianity spread to other regions of the world. That prophecy was fulfilled. So I'm like, man, how could you not believe this? This is absolutely incredible. And so that's the first takeaway, is what we see that there are consequences for rejecting Jesus as shepherd. If Jesus, here's the second takeaway, if Jesus is rejected as shepherd, here's the scary part, another shepherd will take his place. If you reject Jesus as shepherd, another shepherd will take his place. It's important to realize that intentional rejection of Jesus equals unintentional acceptance of something that is anti-Jesus. You don't have to intentionally accept something anti-Jesus. If you reject Jesus, you unintentionally accept something that is anti-Jesus, the spirit of antichrist. And so, like, I think this is important for us even in believers when the Lord asks us to walk in something in obedience and we reject it, we're rejecting the word of the Lord that has been revealed to us that we are to walk out in obedience. And so when we reject that good shepherd, that word from the good shepherd, guess what? There is a wicked shepherd that will give us a word that we want to hear. And that wicked shepherd sometimes may even be our own voice. And that's why Jesus taught so much about listening to his voice, hearing it and following after him and another they will not listen to. And so what we learn from this is that responsibility for human chaos lies directly on human shoulders. So when you see all the chaos in the world, it has nothing to do with God. God has prophesied about all of it. God has told us what is going to happen and the things that he told us is going to happen have happened or they will be happening in the future and we are to be getting prepared for those things that are coming in the future. And then ultimately, rejection equals no protection. Like when you reject, even if you're a believer and you reject in disobedience, you are, you are jeopardizing the protection of the Lord on your life. That's why the blessings can't flow. That's why Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of Christ and all these other things shall be added to you. And so there are a lot of people today that are rejecting Jesus for far less than 30 pieces of silver. And here's the big idea. Those who have accepted are protected. So when we accept him as Lord and Savior, and we recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, and we receive him, he becomes Lord and Savior of our lives, then he begins to protect us in the midst of all the spiritual chaos that is going on around us. Because we are walking with him, and we are worshiping him in spirit and truth. And so we walk in a place of protection and blessing. 
And one might ask, if the covenant is revoked, you clearly taught out of that passage in Zechariah that the covenant is revoked. If the covenant is revoked, how can I walk in protection? This is where it gets really cool. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28, the very night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, hours before he would hang on a cross of Calvary, suspended between heaven and earth, with that sign above his head that said, King of the Jews, here he is hours before that. He enters into a room with 12 men who would be responsible for leading the movement that he said he would build after he rose from the dead. And this is the very words that he says, and so this is why we do communion. He says, when he gives them the cup, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The old covenant is revoked. It is taken away, and the new covenant is initiated the next day. He is betrayed and rejected, and he initiates the covenant of blood. And and so when we look at that, what we have here is that under the new covenant, this is so cool to me, is the under the new covenant, all that is lost is restored. And what is it that is lost? Favor with God and union with man. The covenant that Zechariah broke in the staff called favor, the other staff called union, he says it will be broken. And the only way to have it repaired is to walk in relationship with Jesus. And the things that we learn about Jesus is that he increased in favor with God and man. And when I walk in a relationship with God and I, I recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior, then what he begins to do is establish unity among the brethren. That's why we're called the family of God. And the church is the body of Christ because we function in unity because it has been restored under the new blood covenant that Christ initiated on the cross of Calvary. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Are you walking in that covenant relationship with Jesus? Have you rejected him as a shepherd of your life, as a Lord and Savior, and therefore you've unintentionally accepted something anti-Jesus? Like what you got to do, man, is you got to intentionally recognize Jesus as Lord. And when you do that, man, you're entering into the covenant of blood. Whose blood? His blood. Whose righteousness? His righteousness. And it's all imparted upon you because he restores the favor with God and unity with man. And so as we close the service out, man, like, like the question is, is do you need to get in covenant with Jesus this morning? Do you need to start your covenant relationship with the shepherd king who's left you incredible evidence that you can trust? You can trust as you step out in faith that Jesus, in fact, was God in the flesh. And he died to establish a covenant with you and I today. If you're here this morning and you've never done that and you'd like to make that decision, 
like before I lead us in a prayer, like, would you just like to lift up your hand and say, man, I want to receive, I want to make a covenant with Jesus today. Anybody? I want to walk in covenant with Jesus. I've been, I've been intentionally rejecting him, and I'm tired of living that lie. And I want to accept him today. Anybody at all just raise up your hand? Okay, look, as we enter into a time of prayer, you may feel some tension. You wanted to raise your hand and you didn't. What you need to hear is that, like, man, that's what we're here for. And so all you need to do is just open up and let the good shepherd lead you. He will care for you. He's seeking you. He will heal you. He will, feel, he will feed you. He is the good shepherd. So just open up and tell somebody, man, I want to know more. I want to know more about how to give my life to the good shepherd. Those of you online, join us in prayer, and um, Sean will play us out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the prophecy. Like, Lord, it's incredible, and it bolsters our faith. It encourages us, and so we thank you for it, and we thank you for how it teaches us, um, Lord, that we can walk with you in favor. We can be in unity with each other because of what you have established as a new covenant. And Lord, that when we remember, even by taking communion, let us celebrate all that you've done. We pray, Lord, for those who may need to enter into that covenant relationship with you, that you'd give them the courage to step forward and invite you in, and that, Lord, we'd be able to celebrate that new life and, and that old one passing away so that new one can come. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Christ, and amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.